it's time for another episode of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes. Here's your host, Terrence McCauley. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. My guest today is F.X. Regan. He was a police officer, a SWAT team member, and a special agent for the FBI. He retired with over 33 years in law enforcement. Roslyn Station is available everywhere from Duke Street Press. FX, thank you for being here with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about your latest book, Roslyn Station? Okay, thanks. Yeah, Roslyn Station is actually the fourth book I've written, if you consider the first one to be a compilation of three novellas. Uh, and then I've and then I've written two other additional books in a completely different series, and we can talk about those later. But those books both had to go through the FBI's pre-publication review process, which can be a really in-depth and lengthy process. In fact, one of them's not out of it yet. Uh, and so, in the meantime, I I penned uh, Roslyn Station, which involves a, a female Fairfax County Police Detective Sergeant and the travails she goes on as she tries to get from her townhouse in Vienna, which is in the suburbs of Northern Virginia, uh, downtown to a federal trial and all that goes on uh, during that ride. And then there's some, um, I wrote it in alternate chapters. So every other chapter is sort of a look back at her a recruitment training career up until that point when she gets on the Metro to go downtown. Okay, so it's kind of like uh, it has two different timelines that right. uh, coincide uh, throughout the book. Correct, all the way to the end. I, I think I fairly successfully uh, had exactly every other chapter be uh, in the present day, and then the, the next chapter would be a look back on her career. Wow, now what was it about the story that you wanted to tell that made you want to have different timelines? Well, that's funny you ask. I, I literally wrote the book as another novella, and so it was about 40,000 words. And mm -hmm. I sent it around to some beta readers and they said, you know, this is really good. You need to make it, you know, more in depth, develop her character a little more, uh, tell a bigger story. And so I took that challenge on and it took me about another six months to, um, you know, feed in the background, which is basically alternate chapters that, that go to her, her background and how she got to be where she was on that train that fateful day going to federal court downtown Washington. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting way to be able to deliver a lot of backstory while keeping the flow of the book going. A lot of times, you know, though, I, I can't tell you how many books I've read where the momentum stops because the author is trying to give us as much information as possible about the protagonist. And I think it's a cleaner way to do it if you alternate chapters. Right. I, I'm not sure I could do it every time because it, it, a lot of times I almost thought about making two books and then trying to merge them, which I've heard other authors talk about doing but I was too far right. into it. So you, I really had to keep track of where I was and that was a little bit of a challenge. Right, now how is this one different from a lot of the other books that you've written? You've said you've done three before this one. So what was this process like as compared to those other books? So the alternate chapters made it um, more difficult just from a, um, you know, from a tactical point of sitting down and remembering where I was and how I wanted the, uh, alternate stories to go. Uh, the other right. three books, well, actually the first book, I, I call it a book and it's actually available on Amazon as one complete three novellas. I, I published mm -hmm. them separately and then put them together in a, in a compended volume. Um, those were like 
pretty easy to bang out because they're like 30, 40,000 words and just kind of a fast, fun story. They're about uh, murders that take place in Area 51 out in the Nevada desert in the 50s mm -hmm. and 60s. Um, so those were kind of fun and easy to bang out. Yeah, and then the other two, the, the much more in-depth, I call them my, you know, my flagship series because I'm really looking forward to launching them, are about a former FBI agent uh, in Washington, D.C. who gets dismissed from the FBI over a bad shooting that he was he didn't shoot, but he was responsible because he was the SWAT team leader. And okay. after, be, after being dismissed from the FBI, he becomes a high-end private investigator. Didn't need the money. He was actually a, a multimillionaire many times over because of his father's estate. Uh, okay. And he gets called on to solve some complicated murders. Uh, and in the process of investigating these murders, uh, he trips into conspiracies, rogue government operations and agencies. And um, you know, really just a lot more in depth than anything else I worked on. And I spent some time on those and I had, you know, a professional editor help me do some developmenting on those as, mm -hmm. as well as some cleanup. And so really looking forward to getting those out They're the, the CJ Hawk series. He's the, he's the protagonist. Wow. And now when you were writing something that's based in, uh, historical fact in the past, did you find yourself when the, in the research that you were doing, did you get, uh, did you wind up going down any rabbit holes? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, those two books are both based on historical cases. Uh, the first one is a, a, an assassination, literally, of a, of a doctor that took place in Alexandria, Virginia. And as fate would have it, uh, our protagonist, C.J. Hawk, before he joins the FBI, is an Alexandria city police officer. And he's, he's the first officer on the scene. Goes mm -hmm. on to the bureau. The case gets unsolved for years and years. And then an old homicide detective calls him after he's uh, dismissed from the bureau and asks for his help to really close down this case. So that was an actual case that really happened. And it really was wow. unsolved for a period of time. And then the second case <clears throat> also was a real event that happened much later. I weave the two stories together so the readers won't know because they're two different books, but they took place right. uh, literally 10 or 15 years apart. But the second book involves a series of murders also happened in Alexandria, three of them as a matter of fact. And it was a real whodunit for the police for a long period of time. And in my fictional account of that, of course, C.J. Hawk helps solve it. Right, of course, yeah, because otherwise it wouldn't be a C.J. Hawk book. Right, yeah, yeah, you definitely need to have that happen. It, it's funny, I would imagine somebody with your experience and your depth of knowledge, it's, it's a real temptation to include a little bit too much in there. But as you, you just said, your books all have to be reviewed officially by the FBI before they can be published. So I guess it's a mixed blessing to have to be blessed with a lot of knowledge about how something would happen. And there's always a limitation of what you can share with the general public, isn't there? There is. And it's, it's interesting because an editor I was working with, while the first book was still uh, being reviewed by the Bureau, was telling me, well, you know, you, you really, we hope that it comes back with some blackouts because that looks really cool to the reader and they can see that you really did have something in there that the FBI wanted to black out. But that's not right. the way it went. They sent me emails and asked, asked me to explain, you know, why I said what I said and where they could find that, like in an official document somewhere. And so when I got when I got the document back, it had no blackouts in it. All right. Well, yeah. you know what, though? That's the thing, though. At least you can always say that it was approved by them, which is uh, which lends a lot of credibility to what you already have for the reader, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I have a letter. They, they actually sent a pretty nice letter and, you know, addressed to you. It has the title of the book in the letter and it says that they viewed it and there's, you know, nothing objectionable in there. 
Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we've had a lot of authors on this program who have had to go through the same process. And sometimes it's very quick. Sometimes it takes a long time. And it's not always necessarily due to the book. It's just because there are a lot of people who are in that field who are writing novels now. Exactly. I've, I've heard, uh, and, so, and I've talked to other authors about this, that DOD is probably the, takes the longest. They shop it all around to, you know, different entities within the Pentagon and everybody gets a chop on it and all that. Mine went, first one went fairly quickly. It was less than a year, which is a good thing. Uh, oh, right. second, okay. second one's still in there. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. It, it's a, it's a process like anything else. And it's, uh, it's an interesting one to be sure. Now, um, it's funny because some people are surprised when people in law enforcement, uh, especially at the federal level, write novels and they say, well, you know, they're people who are just so fact-based and look to, uh, to find if there's any criminality in a situation. But I've always said that you're natural born storytellers because your training makes you aware that there has to be a narrative because you have to present that eventually to a prosecutor or to your superiors when you're doing an investigation. So you do understand the, the raw elements of what storytelling is. It has to have a beginning, a middle, an end, rising action, stuff like that. Would you agree that uh, your training helps, helps to frame your mind for fiction writing? Yeah, 100%. I think that you, you, you become the storyteller, as you said. That's a great uh, way of describing it. The challenge is, uh, and I don't think I'm offending most cops and agents out there is that we're trained to write, you know, third person, uh, very just the facts, ma'am, no uh, details, no flowery language. And so that becomes the challenge to learn to be a writer. You know the story, but can you put it in uh, an interesting format that the reader wants to read it, not a police report or an FD302, they call it in the FBI, where it's just hitting the facts. Right, right. Yeah, you have to. And, and the beautiful part about um, your line of work and the people who've done your kind of job is that you get to meet all these different types of characters along the way. And I'm sure that, you know, in the back of your minds, you were always storing little details about each of the people that you meet. Okay, so one of my biggest uh, regrets is not writing everything down in a little notebook somewhere. <laughs> and in fact, right. I'll, I'll be DMing with former officers and, and agents, and, I, and, I, and I'll tell them, I got to write that one down. I just remembered this from, you know, 25 years ago. And I now will go back to my notebook and write some things down as I recall them. But boy, I'm sure it would have been, uh, it would have been advantageous to be doing this the whole time. Right, yeah, I would imagine so. And it, it's funny how, you know, because I was in, state government in economic development and transportation, nothing like yours, your, your side of the fence, but I'm always interested in how Hollywood and books portray the process and it's never as sexy as they, they portray it on television. And uh, uh, Bruce Coffin, who's a, a good friend of mine and an accomplished writer in his own right, uh, I asked him, what's one of the things that bothers him about portrayals of investigations? on television and in books. And he said, that whole thing of the board where you have lines going through pictures, he said, we don't really do that. He said, because you never know who's gonna walk in the room. And a lot of that stuff is, is privileged information. We don't want everybody seeing it. Um, what are some of your pet peeves about how the FBI is portrayed in some of the larger uh, fiction works, either books or movies? So the biggest misconception, and you know, I'm sure it was true during one time, but the, the perception that the FBI doesn't share information 
I mean, that's mm -hmm. a trope that, you know, everybody continues to use. I use it. So, you know, in my books, I, I put that in there. In fact, I'm working on uh, book two in the Kiki Diaz series, the follow-up to Roslyn Station. Um, and, and I'm going through a, a chapter right now where uh, she's accusing, literally, she's accusing a Fed of the exact same thing that I say doesn't really happen. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's probably the biggest trope. I mean, yes, it happens sometimes, but certainly not. Uh, the way that the, the the that Hollywood portrays it, not at all. Yeah, it's funny because I've um, you know before I was really writing crime fiction seriously, I got had the opportunity to meet FBI agents and and hang out with them and have drinks with them, and they said, you know, people don't realize we need the locals to help us build the case that we're building. We you know, and you get more bees with honey than vinegar. And, you know, you can't share everything, but we have a pretty good relationship with a lot of people. Look, there's 700,000 700, of them. There's 13,000 FBI agents. Do the math, right? Yeah. Uh, they're, they're on the street 24 hours a day. Most agents work, you know, a 10-hour day. So, you know, they, they, they know what's going on. Right, right. And they're also a lot more capable than some of the movies make them out to be. But I've had FBI agents tell me, you know what? We're glad that they underestimate us in fiction because... It makes the bad guys froze them off and let them think we're not confident. But right. there's a lot of sharp people in that uh, line of work. Right, right. Yeah, it really is interesting. Um, so while you were uh, in on active duty and you were part of the FBI and a police officer before then, even back then, did you ever have an inkling that you would write about uh, any kind of fiction, much less this kind of stuff? I don't want to say I always wanted to be a writer, but I always loved books and I loved, you know, true crime and I loved mm -hmm. um, fiction. You know, I, I, Joseph Wamba is probably responsible for me wanting to do this. I, I call him the patron saint of every cop want to be a writer um, yeah. because he was and, you know, he's mm -hmm. written some fantastic stuff. And, you know, right up there with him, I think, is Michael Conley, who spent 14 years, you know, on the police beat. And that's how he knows what he knows. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think I always did want to kind of do this. And it's it's just after uh, my career in law enforcement. And then I had another uh, career in the private sector, uh, both with some companies and doing some some private investigations. I'm still a licensed private investigator. I don't do much of it, but um, wow. I, I kind of looked at it as a third act that, you know, let's get some of this on paper. And in fact, in fact, like probably more than 10 years ago, right after I retired, I sat down and spent some time and, and wrote up kind of a biography and I wanted it to be different. I didn't want it to be the usual, my first day at Quantico and my first felony arrest and that, but you know what, it kind of came out right. that way. It's hard, it's hard to write a, a biography, not have it come off like that. So I took right. the chapters out of that book and kind of broke them into, you know, some theme. This would be a good book right here. Just this chapter, the story would be a good book. Uh, and that's right. kind of been my roadmap. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and you've got an extensive tactical background, you know, the bang bang stuff with the, with the SWAT team. And you've also got the investigating background, both as a police officer and as an FBI special agent. A lot of books today tend to overemphasize one part or the other, the tactical side, the guys with, and girls with the, the hats and the, 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 you know, M16s going in and taking somebody down. Or it's too dry and it's it just dwells on the investigative stuff. How do you strike a balance between those two worlds? So I, uh, my my default is is the more detailed um, dialogue and descriptions about what's going on. I have to struggle to inject the action scenes, 
And I can, right. I, I pull from, you know, when I think about it, I'll think of a, like a bank action scene. I'll, I want the, my uh, character to be involved in a, you know, maybe they're in a bank robbery when it goes down, that type of thing. So I'll draw on a real scene where that really happened, but I have to force mm -hmm. myself to say, you know, put some action in here. You got to kind of spice this up. You're three chapters in, nothing's really happened. And I always want to try and start out with some sort of a, a tactical um, action scene, if I can, at the beginning of a book, just to give it some, keep get the reader hooked. Right, yeah, because otherwise it, it winds up reading like a textbook and you don't want to do that. You know, I, I talked to somebody recently about John le Carre and beautiful writer, fantastic stuff. You open up any page of any of his books and chances are you're going to land on a beautifully written uh, passage. But he didn't have a lot of action in his books. And even when he could have, he, he kind of, it was all about the mind games, the strategy, and that was great. But I've often wondered if he could have gotten published today writing a book like that. Um, because, you know, you do have to have some sort of action today for today's modern audience. No, I think you're exactly right. And I've read most of his stuff. Uh, I, I agree with that assessment 100%. I mean, it, sometimes you have to force yourself to keep reading the book. You know he's so good and you know it's going to have a good ending and you know there's twists and turns that you're not seeing. Um, but but you're right. It 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 misses the uh, some of the shoot 'em up stuff that keeps you engaged. Right. Yeah. It, it's definitely a good hook. So when you were doing your and you published your Area Fifty One uh, novellas, um, did you get a lot of feedback from the alien aficionado community? I don't want to call them conspiracy theorists, but there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of definite opinions about what happened back then. Did you get a lot of feedback from them? I didn't get a lot of feedback from them. I looked at some of the, you know, the the literature, the shows, and I talk about it in the in the author notes. Some of the things that I uh, used to to research some of that. Um, Joe Rogan's had a lot of, uh, you know, Area Fifty One folks on his show, and they talk in, you know, very specific uh, details of information they know. Uh, I, but I I push them more as a uh, as a as a noir, uh, more of a right. crime noir, a whodunit, because. You know this this fictional character of mine, uh, John Blackjack Morrison, is a is a DC homicide detective, and he gets sent out to Area 51 to solve these murders uh, as punishment. He screws something up back home, and the, the chief sends him out to Area 51 because they can't trust the Fuds or anybody else to do this. So they need, you know, just a good cop who can get it done. And that's sort right. of the that's the premise and the way I sort of pushed them and marketed them as, as more than sci-fi, although I'm happy for sci-fi people to look at it. And there's a touch of sci-fi in it. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. It's funny, once you start doing that kind of research into that world, it takes on a whole life of its own because you see so many people have these ideas. And then if you dig down a little bit and say, oh, well, they did do their research. They didn't just come up with this last night over dinner. They actually uh, put some work into this. Right. So it's it's a fascinating look into what interests people, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. It certainly is. Now, what was it um, about that particular part of uh, history that you wanted to explore more besides the, you know, the, the Roswell aliens angle of it? So as I was working on my C.J. Hawk novels, um, I had a book in my bookshelf here that I had and hadn't read yet. It's by Annie Jacobson, and she's written a lot of really good stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. And the book is literally called Area 51, An Unclassified History of America's Top Secret Military Base. So I read it, and I thought, you know, this would be a great scene setting for C.J. Hawk to be involved in, to come out. And this is while I'm 
thinking about how long it's going to take me to go through the pre-publication review process. So I thought, you know what, right. back, back up, don't have it involve any FBI, any feds. And in fact, you know, make it uh, in the late 50s and early 60s is when these homicides take place. And that way I can kind of bang them out and not have to go through that process. And that, that's how I kind of got there. I was literally just interested in that book that I read by Annie Jacobson. And then, of course, I had to do a lot more research because I didn't know a lot about it. Uh, right. I didn't know about Roswell. And I mean, I've heard of it, but I didn't know much about it. So I kind of went down that rabbit hole for several months doing some research on that. Right. Yeah. No, that that's that's usually what happens with those things. I'm doing a, a Kennedy project right now. So I think that's the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes uh, with that. So there's well, always, so, uh, so book two uh, in, in the novella series it is literally takes place on November 22nd. It, the homicide takes place on November 22nd, 1963 at uh, uh, Area 51, an hour after the Kennedy assassination. So there's a lot of backstory to that uh, built in. So I, I hear you on that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That's that's a fantastic uh, that's a fantastic way to, to loop everything in together. That was happening back then because there was a lot going on in the country in '63. Uh, you said that you think Roslyn Station is going to be uh, part of a broader series. Uh, do you have, are you working on anything like that for the next book? Or is it just in your mind? What, where does that stand? Yes, yeah, so I'm 50,000 words into book two. I already have a title and I've, I've put it out on social media. It's called Fairfax Station, okay. <laughs> which is actually a neighborhood in the North Virginia area. It's kind of an exclusive neighborhood in Fairfax County, which is good because that's where our hero works for the Fairfax County Police. So I'm mm -hmm. 50,000 words into that. I know how it ends. Uh, I just need to get her there. Uh, and then I actually have kind of a very rough outline in my mind, which is a dangerous place to be of the third book, um, <laughs> which is called um, McLean Station. And okay. I won't say any more about that book because uh, it, I may change some facts around um, to, to make it fit the story I want in my mind. But so it's going to be at least three books. Yeah. Great. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's great to write a series character, isn't it? Because it allows you to, it's a bit challenging when you're writing the second and third books because you have to remember what happened in the first. Correct. But it's also a little bit like coming home for a creative person as right. you're learning more and more about these characters as you create them. Thank God for uh, find and replace on Word, right? <laughs> exactly right. So, you know, I, knew, yeah. I knew I had this guy named Fred. If I can just find Fred in my first book. Uh, so, right. Yeah. yeah, and getting the, uh, because I'll tell you, if you make those mistakes uh, and you, get, you misname a character or you use an armament in the wrong way, you will hear about it. And I know Absolutely. I have, and rightfully so. Hey, Taryn, I just, I just finished, I won't say who it is. I just finished a New York Times bestselling book um, by somebody who is really, really hot right now. And he describes mm -hmm. a clip instead of a magazine and a semi-automatic mm -hmm. handgun, which is like that for the, for the gun guys out there, that's a serious no-no. I have made that mistake myself. And uh, I, I was, <laughs> I've heard from both camps saying, ah, it's not that big a deal. And then I've heard from the people I ask and they say, you know, that's a big deal. Uh, yeah. you, you made a huge mistake there. So yeah, no, it, it, and it helps to, uh, do that extra research if you're not someone like you who's familiar with it and get to understand what the world is like. Uh, start whether no matter what it is, armaments, procedures, things like that. I also write westerns, so I've got. A, I'm looking at a book right now, Guns of the Old West, that I refer to regularly because 
you get the caliber wrong or you get the action wrong on a rifle or a pistol, they are going to come at you. And you know what? It keeps us honest and I don't mind. Right, right, right. No, you're right. And that's that's a challenge because now you're going back a hundred years, right? Um, there's no way yeah. you could know you could just happen to know about what the guns were like in the in the 1800s I just, during that time frame, right? Right. Yeah, 1880s especially. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. The good news is is that the manufacturers kept detailed catalogs, so it's it takes some digging to go back. It's there, but you have to find it. You can't just go on a blog and say, "Oh, this happened this way." Right. That blog writer might not have had it the right way. Right. Manufacturers are, love their history, though, so thank God they. Uh, they have plenty of that on there. So um, what is the best way, because you've got a lot of things coming up, uh, what is the best way that people can follow you on social media, your website, places like that? So fxreagan.com is where I try to make everything available there. Um, I, I, the books, my biography, I have a Substack that I um, write about once a month. And I write that on uh, the police, FBI, true crime. It's, it's all uh, factual. Uh, my mm -hmm. sub my Substack column, and you can you can access that and sign up for it um, right there on FX Reagan. And my uh, Twitter and Instagram handles are both at FX Reagan. R E G A N. Fantastic. Yeah, well, R E G A N. Yeah, that's uh, it's important because there's a bunch of different spellings of it. So uh, FX Reagan is uh, is easy to remember. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to the audience today. I think they've found a new writer that they can read and catch up on. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great. No problem at all. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for joining us for yet another edition of Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes right here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care. You have been listening to Spies, Lies, and Private Eyes with host Terrence McCauley on Authors on the Air Global Radio Network.